Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. The Drive Nation Podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel. For episode 36 of the Drive Nation Podcast, we're going to be taking... A closer look at a handful of our recent Drive Nation posts over on Instagram. We've been covering a handful of big topics, um, some of which have had a huge response. Uh, There's a good mix of topics in there as well. Andrew, the first thing we're going to talk about is the ban coming in 2030 on new petrol and diesel cars. Um, now, we, we knew there was a ban coming anyway, didn't we? But this has just sort of put a deadline on it. Yeah, well, we had a deadline before. I mean, it was 2040, then it was going to be 2035. And now Boris, um, rightly or wrongly, has decided that he wants to get even further ahead of the game um, and made it 2030 which actually, certainly among European nations and maybe in the world, puts us... I think, it's, I think only Norway has a, uh, a, a sooner ban, if that's mm. even English. Um, <laughs> no, I, think, yeah. I, think, I think Norway is 2025. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it, 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 it's coming. And I think the first point to make is commitments like that, um, because they are so politically sensitive are very very hard to reverse your way out of um i i i think it is well i mean ambitious to the point of um not perhaps having even sort of thought it through properly um but we'll i'm sure we'll talk about that but it is what it is except it isn't because you know what it doesn't say um is uh, when petrol and diesel will stop being available, you know, if, you know, clearly, if you buy a new petrol-powered car in 2029, or indeed because hybrids will continue to be allowed until 2035, you buy a car with a petrol-electric hybrid, which, which is therefore still, you know, majority petrol-powered. Um, when you're not going to be able to use that car on the road anymore, but you know, presumably, it's going to be in 10 or 20 years after that. So that gets us into wherever we are into the sort of mid you know 2055s when i suspect that most people um, listening to this are possibly going to be past caring 
Um, so, you know, it, it, it is still, you know, people sort of hear, you know, petrol diesel cars banned from 2030. They think there will be no more petrol diesel cars on the road in nine years time. That's, that's not the way it's going to work. Um, but even so, um, it's a big, big moment. And you'd be, you know, you, you, you'd be naive um, not to recognise it as such. Mm, yeah, it's it's not a ban on petrol and diesel cars. No one's going to come and cube your 911, for instance. Correct. It's it's a ban on the sale of new petrol yeah. and diesel cars. Um, okay, so it's clearly a touchy subject for a lot of car enthusiasts. You can, we can tell it's a big topic because that post on Instagram has had more than 200 sort of full-length comments you know it, people aren't just firing up emojis at us there no 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 people are writing more on the subject than we wrote on the subject which is which is one thing that's always impressed and amazed me about the uh, about the dn community is that, is, that, is that you do get these incredibly impassioned and informed and um you know lengthy responses yeah, um, we we don't want to talk about it in too much depth now we don't want to get into the the politics of it all and so on because that's not really what we're about here but I quite I think, want to get into the politics of it all, but I'm, I'm, okay. I'm, I'm going I'm to resist because I don't think the people listening to this want, want me to start banging on about that sort yeah. of thing. But, so yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll find some middle ground. But I think what we will do is talk about how in the not too distant future we're all going to enjoy driving and enjoy cars because that's a, that's a, you know, that's a big one for me. It really is. You know, I, 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 I understand, maybe you'll feel the same way, Andrew, I understand that we need to find new sustainable ways of, you know, of getting around and of powering our homes and all that stuff. It's, it, it's unequivocal. We have to. And we cannot continue to get up and down this country of ours or any country by burning a finite fuel source and uh, even worse, one that pollutes the environment. We, we sadly can't keep doing it. Um, however, whenever I talk, whenever I see petrol and diesel ban, whenever I see, you know, anything along those lines, I, I feel a little bit gutted because I love cars. I love driving. I love combustion engines. And it does feel like it's our hobby under attack, doesn't it? Yeah, but I think the operative word there is hobby, isn't it? Um, you know, people, you know, the, the, I, I know it's a, it's a slightly false analogy because, you know, horses were never that great a threat to the environment. But just when, you know, when cars replaced horses, it didn't mean that nobody ever rode horses anymore. They became hobbies. Um, and it will become, you know, and I, we are talking, you know, a long way down the track. But eventually the time will come when driving the sorts of cars that we love to drive will become a hobby in, in, in the same way that, I don't know, skiing is a, a, is, is a hobby. Um, you know, what I hope happens is that there is a kind of outbreak of common sense and that people finally realise that cars need to be um, put into sort of two categories the vast 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 majority of them i'm talking more than 95 percent of them um are transport and these are the electric cars that we get into and they can be quiet and they can be comfortable um they can have huge amounts of autonomy um and they can do the really boring stuff they can sit in um, traffic jams going into cities not that there'll be too many of those i hope uh, they can do long distances on motorways and everything else. And that is almost everything. But then in addition to that, there is a little other set of, you know, cars that are used for enjoyment. Uh, and there will be so few of them 
um, that their environmental impact will be minimal and it will recognize nevertheless that you know the classic car industry on its own you know the last time they surveyed it in this country which i think was 2016 and there's another one about to come out was worth five and a half billion pounds to the uk economy and tens of thousands of jobs so on a purely practical economic term terms you don't want to be losing that and also you know i think you know if you live in any kind of sort of free society you know i think the idea of turning around to someone and saying you know we are banning this activity um you know there are some activities which are, you know are, are, have always been illegal and some which have become illegal over time but i hope that our passion is not so socially unacceptable or will not be made to be seen to be so socially unacceptable that the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people around this country and millions around the world who love driving cars because they connect to us and they make us feel free and they make us happy. I, don't, I, I, just, I just really hope that people aren't going to turn around and go, well, you can't do that anymore. Okay, let me um, come back at you. I, go on. <laughs> um, a bit of devil's advocate here. It's, it's clearly not an exact um, equivalency. You know, it's, it's, it's not a direct comparison. But fox hunting is a, an illustration of how attitudes can change very quickly towards a subject. And it can then be banned. Um, now, it's, it's not, we're not harming animals directly. But sadly, people do die on the road. Far too many people do die on the road. And there, there are health consequences. Um, and I, I do worry that... If you're driving through town in a, an old 80s 911 and it's, you know, it's spewing out whatever it is from, from the tailpipe, um, everyone else is in an electric car and, you know, and you're sat outside a cafe somewhere, people will surely take a dim view of that. You, 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 we, could be, we could become social pariahs in town, couldn't we? Well, yeah, well, that's fine. I've no desire to drive, you know, old nine eleven through the middle of a town. Um, I, I, I've absolutely but, 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 no problem. But what, what, those of us who live in town and still love these cars. Yeah. Okay. So. Okay. But you're not going to be. You say. You're, I, I. I take your point. You're not going to be sitting outside cafes, and then you'll. You know, you'll get in. You'll get into your car in your town, and you'll just drive straight out of it. And there will be enough of you. I think. I hope. Um, I mean, maybe the time will come where you have to go somewhere else. Um, you know, out in the countryside or to a track or to wherever where these cars can uh, can be enjoyed. But I. I really do think it's going to be. Um, you know, long after people like us have, uh, are past caring about it. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this will all come in the next, you know, 15, 20 years or so. Um, but I, I don't see it myself um, because I think by that stage, you know, such an enormous step will have been made to address the vast, vast, vast majority of the pollution that comes and the CO2 that comes from cars that you know we will be allowed to exist as a tiny tiny small exception to that rule and i hope that's not just you know wishful thinking um on my part i i genuinely think that the world is far better off thinking about you know the other forms of pollution caused by mass transportation particularly um in the air and at sea um and you know we are you know cars are a part of the puzzle um but, you know, if you include, you know, vans, lorries, rail, aircraft, ships, you know, we're actually a, you know, a reasonably small part of the puzzle. 
Um, and, you know, obviously the cars that we love to drive um, are a tiny, tiny corner of one piece of a, quite a large puzzle. So, you know, I hope that there will still be some tolerance and some understanding out there and that we will not be regarded as, you know, maniacs or environmental criminals, but just, you know, ordinary fun-loving people who have a passion and wish to choose to indulge that passion if that can't happen then i hope that they find a way of putting as i've talked about on this podcast before hydrogen through internal combustion engines so we still get that feel we still get that sound uh, without damaging the planet further yeah lots to unpack there i i, I hope the same as you but i fear the worst i you know i I don't think there's a great deal of tolerance and understanding out there. And I think when every other car that people can see out on the road is electric and there's one throbbing petrol engine spewing out whatever, um, I think that car stands out even more and makes itself more of a target. I j- this is just what I fear might turn out to be the case. Um, I, I dearly hope not. Uh, and, the, and the other thing as well is, you know, once most people are cruising about in electric cars. How much does petrol cost? How much does it cost to tax and insure these things? Um, it, it's a concern, isn't it? It, it? The cost of driving in a, a, an ICE car is inevitably going to become far greater. The cost of driving... Uh, well, well, you say that. You say that. It, I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, you know, um, the reason, obviously, petrol costs as much as it does now is because, you know, over half of what you pay um, for... A, a litre of fuel at the moment goes straight to the government well you know that's you know w- once no more petrol engine cars are sold then that revenue stream has been cut off so um i, I just don't know dan it's uh, it's it's but when these things just become recreations but then when they become hobbies then maybe maybe successive governments will just say we you know we've got to tax these cars off the road we've got to stop people we've got to cut off this avenue of enjoyment from people but i guess because i am generally optimistic about things and because in you know my life to date I, it, it has been a lesson learned that things are very rarely either as good or as bad as you think they're going to be um I, I i think that there will be um provision made but as i said you know maybe i'm completely wrong uh, mm. i hope not i hope you're right but i i do sort of fear the worst well let's just do a couple of minutes on the the politics of it because the, well there's plenty to say about that isn't there i think the, the headline is that the government wants to encourage most of us to shift over to EVs and yet it's committed only four billion pounds to building the EV infrastructure it's just yeah for, well I mean it's 12 billion pounds they've said but of which only four billion is new yeah okay um yeah which is you know dropping the ocean stuff I mean you know HS2 is running at over a hundred billion at the moment and what's that doing that's taking half an hour off your journey time from you know London to Birmingham and then on up to Leeds so um, I, I, I think what we're looking at is a government which, you know, because I, you know, I guess, you know, I, I, I have some sympathy for them because they are, we, we live in unprecedented times and they're dealing with an unprecedented situation. But nevertheless, um, it is perceived to have, um, you know, at best struggled, at worst, completely cocked things up. And it must be desperate to get itself back on the front foot. And I think these kinds of statements, these 10 point plans, um, you know, sound superficially at least very plausible and make the government sound like it's in control and that it's got a plan um, and that we are all progressing forward to, you know, the environmentally more responsible life that, you know, I'm sure most of us wish to, um, wish to work, wish to uh, have. But, 
you know, the reality gap between what it is suggesting and how it might actually be implemented is so enormous. Um, you know, just in terms of establishing the infrastructure, just in terms of allowing the car manufacturers to make these uh, adaptions, whether even an EV is the right way to go. I mean, my understanding was always that, you know, people sort of thought that in theory hydrogen was the future uh, because, um, you know, hydrogen and oxygen equals water and that's your your emissions and you don't have any recharging problems, you don't have any range issues um, and it's truly clean and so on and so forth. And the problem always was that you couldn't get an environmentally clean source of hydrogen at a price the market was prepared to afford. Now that problem is going away day by day. Um, and if we um, use the incredible resource that we have, which is, you know, um, the offshore opportunities for offshore power, um, which most other European countries don't have, then, you know, clean sources of hydrogen should be very affordable in the future. So, you know, I'm not even convinced that battery electric vehicles, which have all these other problems, which we've gone into before, and we're not going to go into now about their real environmental costs and ethical issues and so on and so forth. I'm not even sure that they're going to turn out to be the future anyway. They may just turn out to be another bridge to the future, just like um, petrol electric plug-in vehicles are now. So, yeah, um, very easy to come up with a 10-point plan, um, very difficult to implement it, and you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see how they get on. It seems unthinkable to me that on the evidence of this, the basis of this 10-point plan, that in only nine years, car, only nine years, <laughs> it's not long, cars that we adore, MX-5s, 911 GT3s, Fiesta STs, Ferraris, they will not be the same as they are today. At best, we'll have five years of them being hybridised, but then after that, according to this plan... Um, they'll be done for. They'll have to be full EV or some other solution. We'll come to that in a moment. But doesn't, it just seems incredible that in nine years it's all going to turn around so completely. Um, it's, but I, may, but, it's kind but of maybe it me. won't. I mean, maybe it won't. I mean, it's... But, but this is the point I'm making at the beginning. It's a very, very hard thing to um, to renege on. I think politically, it's all, it's probably almost impossible to renege on. And I think, regardless of the colour of the government that's in office at, at any given time, I think to turn around and go, no, actually, we're going to allow you know pure petrol cars to be sold until you know 2035 or 2040. Uh, I, you know, given what's been said, I think it's really, really difficult to um, to go but come turn around and go, well, kidding. Um, so I think it is going to happen. Um, and you know, we just have to get our heads around it. I mean, what I'm struggling with is that, you know, nine years, you think back nine years, um, you know, to, you know, well, it's, we're almost in 2021 and nine years before 2021 was 2012. That's when the London Olympics was. Well, in my head, that was last week. Yeah. Wow. Um, <laughs> hmm. You know, and that's the time frame we're talking about. What do the likes of Porsche, Ferrari, Lamborghini, McLaren... What do they do? Okay, they can bolt in hybrid equipment, which they are doing to many of their cars. But after 2035, what? Do they? Do those cars just not get sold here and in other markets that have a similar ban? I think most other markets will have a similar ban by then. Um, I, think, I, I, I think once these bandwagons get rolling, I think, I think everybody else tends to end up jumping on board. 
Um, I mean, that's the thing. And, and not just them. I mean, you know, close to home, what is, what are the likes of Caterham and Ariel and, you know, and Lotus and, you know, a wonderful British sports car manufacturer is going to do, um, if they can't have internal combustion engines anymore? Um, you know, I, I, I can't see myself getting terribly excited about an electric powered Caterham, I'm afraid. No, you know, Maybe, and again, we've been down, we, we've been here before on this podcast. Maybe some incredibly clever chap or chap S is going to come along and um, figure one, one out for us and find a way for electric cars to become really, really tactile and involving and interesting. I can't see it myself, but that may say more about me than, than them. I don't know, but um, I'd be really, really worried. I mean, I think people will still, but the thing is, because I think people will still buy electric Ferraris and Lamborghinis because uh, they will remain status symbols um, and, you know, all of that. For all the reasons that people actually buy those cars these days, very few of those cars get sold to people because they, you know, love driving them in the way they're designed to be driven. You, you, you and I both know that. Um, they are bought as status symbols. They are bought by people who you know, wish to communicate a certain image of themselves that they would like other people to receive. And that's not going to change. People don't buy caterums because of that. People buy caterums because they love driving cars and for no other reason. Um, And that's, you know, guys like Morgan. I mean, those are the guys that I really fear for. Um, And, you know, I hope that maybe there will be some kind of exemption for those guys in the UK and maybe abroad, whereby if your production is below, I don't know, 5,000 units a year or whatever, then, you know, because you are perceived to be, you know, important um, to the heritage and character of the country, uh, the rules don't have to apply to you. You know, we know that with small volume car manufacturers, you know, they don't have to supply, they don't have to subscribe to the same safety rules as large volume cars, do they? Um, you know, they don't have to go through endless crash tests because everybody knows that if they did, that they wouldn't exist. So maybe they will get exemptions. I mean, you just need a bit of pragmatism, a bit of flexibility and a bit of common sense, and then it'll be okay. Um, <laughs> with, with, bit with, of without sense. Hmm, we'll see. Bit of um, common sense, I know. The, an interesting comment from Louis Camilleri, CEO of Ferrari, uh, this week or last. Um, he said, Ferrari might have electric cars, as the future might dictate, um, but Ferrari will never be an all-electric brand, and it will always have internal combustion. Um, this is from a report that goes on to say, at least that's how we interpret statements from Camilleri. Um, apparently the lineup won't even reach more than 50% EVs and there will always be internal combustion. So did he say internal, there'll always be internal combustion or petrol powered internal combustion? Did he say what he was going to be combusting? It, no, no. And that you're, you're quite right. Cause there's, and that is talking about synthetic fuels. There's no comment on that, but you know, for someone like Camilleri to say, we'll always have internal combustion being fully aware, one assumes, of the petrol and diesel bans, diesel not relevant, but the petrol bans that are coming in, not only in the UK, but in, you know, lots of other countries. What are they backing? They're backing a horse somewhere, aren't they? They know something. I, well, I mean, I, th- I, think, I think you've got to look at this in, in, in slightly sort of cynical political terms. I mean, you know, he may well be thinking that 
um, there's a real and present threat to his cars now because people will be thinking that they won't be developing new cars and that, that, that they need to start looking elsewhere. Uh, and he may well be thinking that, you know, I probably won't be doing this job in 10 years' time, so I'm not going to have to deal with the fallout of it. And my job right now is to is to keep cars selling. And therefore, we need to maintain the brand image and the brand values of our company now. And the future will, de- will deal with itself. Um, I don't know. I suspect there's something more than that going on i think that through either through through hydrogen or through synthetic fuels or whatever i think that um he thinks that there's a way that you will continue to be able to sell because no one has said they're banning the internal combustion engine all they have said is that they're banning sales of cars with internal combustion engines that are powered by petrol or diesel that's true um so maybe they need to be powered by something else mm. we'll see we know porsche are backing synthetic fuels they're really they're, they're committing a lot of investment into um researching yeah, and, and, and they're complete idiots aren't they <laughs> yeah they always get this stuff wrong okay so this it all raises what for me is a much more interesting question um if we can no longer let's assume that there is no solution to the combustion engine problem and they're gone at some point new ones at least how do we enjoy cars in 20 years time i think it, we're going to have to set aside time to actually go and do it aren't we it's it's going to become as you say like skiing it's going to become a pursuit we're going to do track days we're perhaps going to do more motorsport assuming that we're allowed to in the way that we are at the moment do you know if i was if if, if i was the owner of a small and affordable british racetrack or in fact a racetrack almost anywhere i mean I'd, i'd have a big cheesy grin on my face at the moment i think that is a very very good business to 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 be in um and i think you know increasingly um and it's you know they're not gonna have to wait until 2030 i think i think i think we know already don't we at the moment you you try and find yourself some track time on a, on, on a track at the moment it's very very difficult um and i think that the moment um you know hopefully sometime next year coronavirus becomes a thing that is at least largely in the past and people start trying to make up for lost time um, I think we're going to be fighting over every position on every grid. I, th- I think that's, you know, and, and I think that's the way that it's going to go because I, I think that, you know, going back to what you were saying about, you know, these cars in town, um, you know, in, in my more pessimistic moments, of which I don't have many, you know, if the cars are handed out to the towns, which I, I don't really have a problem with, um, you know, there may be that provokes an attitude which maintains when they see them in the countryside too and maybe it will no longer be acceptable to go howling around the countryside in something that is you know putting out pollutants and making a lot of noise uh, at which stage the only place left your only refuge will be the racetrack um but obviously you know that has massive implications because if you think about the number of racetracks in this country and even if they were all busy all the time that's still not very many cars going around tracks mm, true i i wrote a piece on this subject for our patreon supporters patreon.com forward slash drive nation go there you can bung us a few quid a month please do that yeah in, in and, thank you, and also thank you so much to those who do because um we we have enormous plans coming up for drive nation and you know it's 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 the backing of people like that that's going to you know enable us at least in part to be able to put those plans into into action so thank you for that yeah everyone who does support us on patreon um we write weekly articles for them full-length weekly articles and i wrote one a couple of weeks ago about this subject matter actually and i was saying that though i love driving on the road and i understand that the availability of an on-road driving experience is far greater than any other kind 
when I reflect on the great driving experiences that I've had, I realise that mostly they're away from the public road. And that kind of gives me some hope that as long as we can keep enjoying these combustion engine cars on track, in motorsport, um, in, you know, dedicated areas, um, then I think we can continue with this, this hobby of ours, having, having fun in cars. I think I think the only thing I would add to that is so long as it remains affordable too. Well, that that's that's the issue, isn't it? Like, yeah, I mean, it's you know, it's you know, the, it, it's all very well, well, you know, for motoring journalists who have, you know, good access to wonderful cars, and for wealthy people who can, you know, just afford to write the check. But you know, if you're a bloke who, you know, perhaps doesn't earn very much uh, and just has a 20 year old mx5 that they just adore to their boots um you know you really don't want him or her being run off the road um because they won't be able to afford to go and you know hire you know even mallory park let alone the grand prix circuit at silverstone so um yeah that's absolutely right and it's interesting that you chose that car because i did a motorsport event recently an auto solo and I, I didn't tot up the cost of the full day, but I reckon it's it's less than a hundred quid to go and spend a day skidding skidding about in, you know, a fun old car. So I still think that even in this brave new future, there'll be forms of motorsport and of track days and of driving that are affordable and accessible. I certainly hope so, and I know there there are lots of people working hard to ensure that is the case. Actually, so I still feel quite optimistic about that stuff. Let me run another idea by you. I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely breath-baited, mate. Go for it. Well, you should be. It's a good idea. I don't know why I'm giving it away for free, except, although I do. It's, I think it's a good idea, and I have no means of doing anything with it, so I'm going to put it out there in the hope that somebody else takes it on, and it happens, because I'd, I'd love to see it. Imagine if, after 2030, after 2035, we, there's an industry that crops up um, that effectively does what Singer does with old 911s, but hopefully at a you know, much more realistic price point for most of us, um, and restore and renovate and improve upon combustion engine cars, performance cars that we really love. So imagine an E46 M3. This company could buy an E46 M3 for 15 grand or 20 grand, whatever they cost in 2030, strip it back to its bare bones and fully restore it, um, make it absolutely exquisite, improve it in certain ways. Uh, fit the latest sort of communications equipment inside so you, you don't even feel like you're missing out in that sense and that car would be exempt from you could, they could even warranty it okay and offer it on finance that car would even would be exempt from the ban because it's not a new car it's a restoration but you and i would feel as though we were driving about in a brand new car because it had essentially not covered any miles and its interior everything would be immaculate but we'd be driving around in a a wonderful internal combustion engine car. That'd be good, wouldn't it? Yes. Um, I, you should have kept that idea to yourself because I think that's <laughs> an absolute... No, I think that's an absolute... But I mean, yeah, clearly, clearly that is going to happen, isn't it? It uh, seems so. In fact, two things are going to happen. People are going to be taking those cars and you're going to be able to choose, aren't you? You're going to be able to choose whether to have it um, you're beautifully restored in exactly the same way that you suggest or what is actually happening now the car externally uh, looks exactly the same but internally it's got um you know batteries and electric motors and and, and so on and so forth so you can still have you know and, and for lots of people you know the joy we might may enjoy skidding around in those cars but for lots of people um particularly for you know the, some of the older stuff and the really beautiful stuff it is it is the design 
um, and the styling as much as the driving that um, that draws people to those cars. Um, and I think that you know, we know because these cars are being sold now that people that people like the idea of you know of, of having it both ways of, of going around the place in something you know old and beautiful. Um, and but at the same time, you know showing the world that you know that, that, that you care about the environment so but, but i think i think you're absolutely right i think i think that's a fantastic idea and and sooner or later some smart person somewhere in government is going to realize it and let there'll be legislation and you know um we won't be able to do it but let's hope that doesn't happen Mm, okay well unless there's anything else you want to say on this 2030 ban no no let's move on let's move on let's move on no, I'm okay done with it. good so last week we promised that after i'd driven it we'd have another quick chat about the toyota gr yaris and sort of compare notes a little bit. I also... I, I, I understand you thought it was a complete shed. Most overrated car that's been offered for sale in the last two years, wasn't it? Yeah, anyone who's given that car 9 out of 10 really needs to have a long, hard look at themselves and wonder... <laughs> what, no, no I, uh, sadly, I, I wish I could be sort of so contrary and interesting, but... No, I thought it was wonderful. I, I really enjoyed driving it. I mean, it's... Yeah, well, no there's a surprise. Yeah. So I, I drove a convenience pack car. Uh, rather than the circuit pack car so it it had the Ooh. different suspension settings it had different wheels no uh, didn't have the torsen diffs um which uh, it, it, i you know I, i'm clearly more drawn to the circuit pack car and i'm driving it next month and i'm I'm really looking forward to that oh I'm, but i'm really interested uh, in yeah. what so this is this is like the 29995 car pray tell it's really lovely so i i'm a, a bit I, I don't feel like i've really explored the car fully just because of the, dro- the the roads that I drove it on, um, mostly sort of quite fast flowing roads rather than um, roads with tight corners. And it's I think you need tighter corners to really understand what the four-wheel drive system is doing beneath you, particularly in the different modes. Um, so for the most part, just driving it on these flowing, sweeping roads, it just felt like a really well-sorted front-wheel drive hot hatch to me. It just, you know, it, it rode, this convenience pack car just rode in a lovely way. Um, I thought it steered intuitively and quite crisply. Um, the car felt darty and without being over the top, you know, it felt really agile and keen. It, it, it was just a lovely thing to sort of f- sweep along these roads in. Um, and in the few tighter corners that I, I was able to find where you can toy with the, the different four-wheel drive settings, I think what I found was that in track mode, it exits a tighter corner. You, you know, you can give it, full gas really early on and exit the corner in a very neat and precise way and it you know there's no wastage there's no there's no slip or anything the car just sort of hooks up and goes because it's a 50 50 torque split in that mode um and then as you'd expect in the sport mode which puts 70 percent of the torque to the rear axle um in the corner the, the, on the roads i drove it on i was just starting to feel it beginning to sort of rotate at the exit under power and just slide ever so slightly away from the corner, which is a lovely sensation. And that's, that's what I want to feel. But I'm, I just want to spend more time in the car uh, and in the circuit pack car. I want to drive it on track and I want to drive it on different roads with much tighter corners where I can really start playing with that four-wheel drive system a bit more. Um, but on the evidence of that first actually quite short go, I, I thought it was brilliant. I happened to drive one only only briefly, but yesterday. Um, I, and and the thing that struck me again about it, and I didn't, as I didn't drive it far, and I didn't drive it too fast. But I mean, but just accelerating up through the lower gears. I mean, did yours feel 
improbably rapid in a straight line. <laughs> uh, it, yeah, it's a little three-pot, isn't it? 260 horsepower. But that engine really pulls. It's a, it's a little ripper. It really pulls. I mean, you know, if you'd said to me, it's got 320 horsepower, I, I, I would have bought that instantly. I mean, there was the one I drove yesterday, I mean, it just hauled. It really, really did. Um, Are you suggesting uh, it, we need to put one on a dyno and see what's up? No, not really. What I am suggesting is that I think people who get them um, will be just be, be amazed by it for all sorts of different reasons. And, and, and your insight into the convenience pack car is is very interesting um, because it sounds to me, I mean, there's nothing that you've said which I wouldn't say doesn't equally apply to the track pack car, which is the only version that um, that I've tried. So. I wonder. I just wonder how different they really are. I wonder how much difference because I mean it's quite a big package, isn't it? It's not just you know it's suspension, isn't it? And it's those and it's the differentials. And it, I mean, I, it's, it's, someone needs to get them both together on road and on track and come up with you know the definitive advice yes. as to whether it's worth spending another ten percent on the track pack car. Which because I think I think instinctively people will just think. Well, I mean, three grand's quite a lot of money, but hey, you know, if we're going to get one of these, we might as well get the full fat one. Um, and but get, it, but and, it and, might and, not. It might not be the case that the circuit pack no. car is necessarily the one to have, particularly if it's got stiffer suspension and you're using it as a daily. It's an interesting. But that's point, what surprised isn't it? me because yeah, it is. But you know, it does have stiffer suspension. But you know, I've driven three now, um, and I think they all had track packs on them, and I never thought in any of them that the ride was in any way, even you know, mildly annoying, let alone offensive. Um, so, you know, so, so which makes me wonder why, if they're going to go to the bother of, you know, particularly stiffening up the cement, I mean, why not really do it? Why not put, have great different, so that's why, I'm, you know, that's why I need to drive and understand both just to understand what level of differentiation there is between them. Because from what you've said and from what I've experienced, it doesn't seem to be that great. Um, but who yeah. knows? Yeah, I'd love to drive them back to back. It, it would be fascinating to know uh, exactly what the differences are. But also, you know, from a more sort of practical point of view, there are certain bits of equipment that you can't get on the circuit pack car, aren't there? Oh, um, I don't know. Go on. Uh, yeah, I've, I've not looked into this uh, particularly closely, but silly things like, I think, a, a reversing camera or whatever. There's stuff that you might well want if it's your everyday car. Um, but Reversing you, you, camera or torsion differential. That's a I hard know, to make, I'm isn't just, it? I'm just bit playing devil's advocate again. It's you know it it's the, the the point is there might well be good reason just to stick with the the normal car and at least be. saving three thousand pounds. Um, yeah. Although, did you, except um, do you, do you want to be the bloke who gets to the pub with a car and somebody turns around and goes track pack and you go no convenience. You just don't want to be that person, <laughs> do you? You really and, and they go. Oh, oh uh, right, okay. That's that's the convenience package. Okay, and and and, and for you to know. All the conclusions they've immediately leapt to about you, yeah, uh, which almost completely negate the fact the the, the the reason you bought the car in the first place. But he, he's he's at so least in convenient. Terms of how you're perceived. <laughs> yes, it's so convenient. It's got a reversing camera. Look, and I mean, sadly, for the rest of your well, your, your ownership of that car, you'd be nicknamed Mister Convenient or something, wouldn't you? You you'd just hear yes. no end of it. Yes. Yeah, you're not going <laughs> well, to go. do it, are you? That's reason enough to have the circuit pack there. So, official Drive Nation advice is spec the circuit pack. Yes, every single time even though we haven't driven them side by side <laughs> um did you see the videos that harris posted online i think it was at the top gear track in a gi Yaris, and he's sliding it through corners like it's a a, a a sunbeam it looked fantastic didn't it it did look amazing it did look amazing in fact uh that's the car that i drove yesterday um and yeah um 
I just want to have another go in it. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm. Can I say this? I probably can. I know. I know at least somebody in our industry. Uh, absolutely not me. Uh, who's getting a long term one of those? And I just, I just couldn't be wow. more jealous. Yeah. Wow, that's good, isn't it? Fair play. Yeah, I'm a bit put out by that. Oh well. Um, okay. Yeah. It's, it's such a cool car though, and having driven it, um, you know, I was excited about it anyway. Having driven it, I just, I think it's great that it exists at all. Um, so, bravo, Toyota. Let's move on to um, a slightly less sort of every man accessible topic. You and I have a healthy dose of cynicism, I think, for these Nurburgring lap records, don't we? Oh, so we're now referencing your post about the Mercedes AMG Black Series, and it's. Um... And it's yes, and, it, and it's extremely rapid time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We 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 do. We are a bit cynical about them, um, for for I think understandable reasons. But I've completely interrupted. I'm really sorry. But all, all I was going to say is, <laughs> I, I think to me, um, you know, when you know Porsche or Alfa Romeo comes out and says that it's broken the lap, the Nurburgring lap record for a two and a half ton SUV, I literally couldn't care less. I'm looking at it and thinking uh, I, there is at no level does that information interest me. But the ultimate one in terms of how fast can a road legal car get around that track, um, I guess, but just because I've got a sort of an understanding and a knowledge of how fast racing cars used to get around there. And it helps me place road cars of today with racing cars from back there and see you know, how close now we are getting to where they were there. There is an academic interest for me in that which is why i still pay these sort of ultimate lap times far more attention than they probably actually deserve mm. yeah i mean there's at the end of the day there's still something fundamentally cool about a young hotshot driver drive you're know, taking a fearsome car and lapping it around that place in something like a six minute 43.6 which is what the gt black series did it's just sensationally quick um so, yeah, bit... and, and, and the onboards are always good to watch, aren't they? I mean, it, it is a genuinely... I mean, if you just look at it in terms of what you're looking at, forget the time and everything else, you know, if, if, if like I'm sure everybody listening to this, you know, you and I spend far too much time looking at exciting YouTube videos of cars, particularly on board of cars going around track, and it is just an exciting thing to see, to see someone you know, as talented as Mario Engel um, in a car as fast as that um amg going around a track as ferocious as the nurburgring it is just you know all times aside it is just an interesting thing to watch isn't it oh uh, yeah i yeah i and agree exciting. it is it is, yeah. it is. Uh, it, yeah i feel as cynical as you do about this stuff but I, I can't help but be impressed when you know when the lap record when the lap comes out and the footage comes out and uh, it's, it's just exciting um and so just a bit of background as you said yeah it's maro maro engel the um the German GT3 uh, driver. He's a Mercedes factory driver. Um, can I, can so I just it, say one thing about him? This is, this is, this is my on. insider Maro Engel um, scoop. Um, I've met him. Oh, go on. Yeah, I'm more likely to remember this than him. I only met him briefly, and it was in the bar at the hotel um, that is on the perimeter of the Bathurst racetrack. Oh. Um, and he just missed out winning it or doing really well in it because one of his teammates did something spectacularly silly um and he came into the bar and he was really really cheesed off and even though he was a really really cheesed off bloke he just came across as being a really nice guy too and he sat, sat down we had a quick drink and he was just a terrific bloke so oh. there you go i just Good. thought i mentioned that 
Yeah, good. Yeah, thanks for contributing. Um, That's quite okay. Uh, so the yeah, it was the the track was dampish in places and it wasn't warm. Um, so you know, not necessarily ideal conditions. But he he managed a six forty three point six in the Black Series anyway. Going, I think it's one point four quicker than Marco Mapelli, who I've met. There we go. Some no, there you go. Some reciprocity here. Yeah, he's a he's a lovely bloke. <laughs> Actually, go on. Let me let me tell you a quick story about Marco Mapelli. Um, go on. So he were you another... were you in the bar? No, we were at Vizzola, which is Pirelli's tire testing facility near one of the Milan airports. I think Linate um, and. Th- he had just set, he'd broken the lap record in the, the Aventador SV. A few, this was a few years ago. Um, and so I had a little natter with him about that. Um, and just to skip forward, so he, he since re-broke the lap record in the Aventador SVJ. And it's that one that Engel uh, beat uh, this month or last month. Um, but anyway, so I was in uh, Vizzola talking to Mapelli. And once we'd had our little chat, he went out in this perfectly tatty uh, E90 M3 saloon that Pirelli had for testing tyres. Um, and there's a wet handling circuit at Vizzola with a, a sort of figure of eight with a bridge going over the top. Um, and he was just drifting this M3 around this entire circuit like it was nothing. The precision with which, with which he'd <laughs> come into a bend and go up yeah. over, the, over the bridge... In on the lock stops, just nibbling a tiny little bit of the gravel on the exit, and yeah, I just it was car control like I'd never seen before. It it was spectacular to watch. It's um, wonderful to watch. Yeah, it's a, pff, honestly it's so humbling when you meet these guys, or even when you just watch them on, on boards of them. You just think, yeah, crikey, why do I even try? But that's what happens when you know a, 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 an absurd amount of talent um, meets an incredible amount of you know, dedication and experience. I mean, you know, he would have done that a bazillion times before. Um, and, you know, he's an incredible... And, and, and then when you get that combination, uh, extraordinary stuff does happen. Now, so just going back to this um, Mercedes record for a second. So he did... So, so let's not bother with tennis. They did a six... He did, he did a 6.43, yeah? Uh, which they're claiming as a record. But Go I on. think we know that a Porsche 911 GT2 RS has already done a 640. And what you're going to say to me is, aha, yes, but it's not a production car because this was a Manti-modified Porsche 911 GT2 RS. At which stage, I'm going to turn around to you and go say, aha, yes, but who owns Manti? And the answer to that is, well, at least the majority of it is owned by Porsche. So are we not in the realms of semantics here as to who's done what? Hugely, Um, You know, because I don't, I don't think anybody's talking about that Manti record. But to me, this was, you know, it was still a road legal car. Um, yeah, it still had number plates on it. It was still on treaded tyres. Um, it was, it, it had some, you know, I mean, the thing is, you know, it, Mercedes obviously comes out with a load of optional extras that it can stick on um, its AMG GT and, 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 so do, and so do others, you know, track day tyres and so on and so forth. And none of us blinks. Um, but when... A Porsche-owned or majority Porsche-owned company does the same to a Porsche. People think, well, that doesn't count. Yeah, it, it's categorised, isn't it? Officially, as a, a modified car, which is it, that's totally up for debate. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, all I would say 
is, I mean, everybody can come re- reach their own conclusions as to which is the more legitimate and, uh, and that. But all I would say is don't, don't ignore it because I still think for a road car, which it is, an entirely road legal car, um, in a way that is completely um, officially verified and has never been disputed for, that I'm aware, can get around that track in six minutes and 40 seconds dead, I find just, you know, astonishing. Um, and, 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 and every bit as praiseworthy as what um, Engel did in that Mercedes. Mm. Um, okay, so I wrote a slightly sort of provocative arch post about this. Um, and what I pointed out was that the, the lap that Murray Engel put in, a 6.43.6, in the Black Series, was within half a second of the time that Kenny Brack... Um, okay, so we know he's also fearsomely talented at the wheel. It's he got within half a second of the time that Brack put in in a Lanzanti developed McLaren P1 LM, um, and I just wanted to try and get to the bottom of how a car, the Black Series, that's 200 kilos heavier, that's down on power by almost 300 horsepower, that has around half the downforce. How is it possible? Technically, how is it how is it physically possible for that sort of machine to get within half a second of something like the P1 LM? Uh, I, well, okay, so I, I think three things, uh, three areas um, for investigation: car, track, and driver. Yes. Um, so I mean, so or, or, or should I say, tires, track, and driver, probably. Mm. Mm. Um, the, so you know, I can't remember when the P1 LM did it, but it, it was uh, only 2017, so not not too long ago. Okay, so I don't know whether the Nurburgring has been substantially resurfaced since then, but given the amount that it is used, and it is used pretty much 24/7, isn't it? Um, I wouldn't be surprised if the tarmac that they're using today is not um, in, you know, it, it has not been laid. Um, what am I trying to say? You know what I'm trying to say? It's on different tarmac now to the, to the tarmac that it was on then um the other thing is you know kenny brack is a lunatic behind the wheel i mean he is an absolutely unbelievable driver um you know anybody who's seen him drive a gt40 around goodwood knows that but is he an acknowledged nurburgring expert mm-hmm. um Legitimate not to my question. knowledge yep um whereas maro engel you know, I think he has, if he's not one N24s, he certainly had poles on the Nürburgring. I mean, you know, he'll be one of these guys who knows that place like you know the inside of, of, of your home. I mean, he will be absolutely all over it. Um, and, you know, I can remember when I once raced a car there with Klaus Ludwig and just looked uh, at the onboard or bits of track that he was using and the way that he was driving. I mean, he was basically driving around a different track to me. And this was back in the day when I thought I knew it. Um, so I think that there is probably a lot of scope there. Um, and, you know, and the other thing is, you know, as you referred to in your post is, and I'll, perhaps I'll let you talk about this, is, is the whole issue of the tyres. Yeah, so I, the sense I get is that like for like, if, if everything was the same, the McLaren should have been approximately 15 seconds quicker. That's, I've done a little bit of digging around and that's the impression that I have. I might be wrong, but let's, let's go with that for the time being. And I suspect that you can put five seconds down to um, driver and track. I think that's yeah, probably maybe. fair enough. And I'm attributing, therefore, the, the final 10 seconds to tyres. 
Um, do, 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 a, do, do you happen to know what tyres the P1LM was on? Yeah, it was on Pirelli Trofeo R's. Okay, so we know... A tyre we know I, 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 well, I mean, But I know now, um, and I may not be making any friends at Pirelli when I say this, but, you know, okay, I say I know. I have done, um, you know, tests with cars with Trofeo R's on and Cup 2 R's on. In fact, I did a test very recently on the same car and went one from one to the other, and there's no question at all that... Um, you know, let's forget all tyre development for the moment that's happened in the last um, how, however long it is. Um, a Cup 2R is a quicker tyre than a, than, than a Trofeo R. I just, I just, in my, I absolutely believe a Cup 2R is a quicker, is, yeah. is a quicker tyre. Uh, yeah. Compared like for like in 2020, let alone in 2018 or whenever the P1 LM went around the ring. You're right. Yeah, it is. And actually, we know that's true. But there's this line from uh, some official Michelin um, documentation, a bit of literature. Uh, tests carried out on a circuit by Michelin with different vehicle manufacturers show an average increase of half a second per, per kilometre using this new tyre, the Cup 2R. Cup 2 R. <laughs> half a second per kilometre? Yeah, how long's the ring in kilometres? 12.9 miles, uh, 21 kilometres. So that's, that's 11 seconds, isn't it? About 10 seconds. That's unbelievable. So that you know, is it, absolutely unbelievable. It's just an open and shut case for me. What Michelin don't say is compared to what tyre, but we have to presume it was the best tyre that was available until then. Um, I don't know. So, yeah, and it's it, it therefore just demonstrates to me that the the increase in performance that we're seeing at the ring. Um, I take nothing away from the Black Series. You know, I was a bit provocative in that post, but in fact, I have a huge amount of respect for AMG. The Black Series is clearly a formidably capable car. Mauro Engel is clearly a genius at the wheel. But the bulk of the improvement in lap time that we're seeing is down to the only part of the car that actually touches the road. Yes, and that has been the case um, for a while now. And if we go back and we look at records that were set by cars you know, further back. Um, I mean, you can remember, I mean, I can remember when, you know, anything that would go under eight minutes was regarded as a really, really, you know, very, very rapid car. I mean, I can remember, you know, the Nürburgring pack Lexus LFA, uh, which was a weapon. Um, whenever this would have been, I would think, you know, maybe six, seven years ago. I think it did a 714 with an absolute maniac driving the car and us thinking, oh my goodness, that is absolutely unbelievable. Uh, and then the 918 Spider, didn't it? It went under seven minutes and us thinking, well, I mean, who knows what it'll take to beat that. And now, you know, Porsche 911s are, you know, and what what amazes me about this is that um, it, it, I think it only happen, happened once uh, that the Nürburgring 1000Ks was run on the Nordschleife alone. Um, and it was in 1983, and it was the last time that proper sports cars, you know, the, the, the equivalent of what are LMP1 prototypes today. Uh, so these are cars with massive slick tyres, purpose-built prototypes, huge amounts of power, full ground effect bodywork let's not forget yeah um and you know mercedes amg gt and porsche 911 road cars are going around in times that would have got them quite a some distance into the top 10 of cars that were entered into that race phenomenal Which isn't it totally blows my mind you think about it you know you've got up one and you know you've got stefan belloff in a porsche 956 
Um, and there are guys there with other Porsche 956s who perhaps aren't as good as Stefan Beloff, and you're mixing it with them in a Porsche 911 road car on a road legal tyre. I mean, that, go That you figure. can drive home in afterwards. That you can drive home in afterwards. Go figure. <laughs> There's one other comment to make about the tyre thing. Because it's not necessarily the case that it's tyre development, okay? Bear with me. I think what, what we're actually seeing is a new type of tyre entirely. The Cup 2R is just hyper, hyper aggressive, isn't it, in its compound, in its tread pattern and so on. And actually Mercedes stipulated that it was on the softer compound tyre that it makes available for this car. Um, and we've both tried the Cup 2R and it, it's got a long life. You know, after a handful of laps, you can keep lapping on it and it will carry on gripping and working really well. But in terms of ultimate lap time, it's got only a few laps in it, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. It does. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, on a short circuit, um, you know, like, I mean, I can remember driving a Pista at Anglesey uh, and they actually had Cup 2s and Cup 2Rs. And Ferrari, being Ferrari, were, of course, there and managing this stuff. And they wouldn't let us do more than five flying laps on the Cup 2Rs because they said they were just done by then. Um, So, I mean, okay. so let me ask you this. Um, Do you think... The purpose of these tyres, actually, and if you think about it, you are Mercedes or your Porsche or your Lamborghini. Um, it's probably worth your while, isn't it, for car companies like this to pay car companies like this, you know, a lot of money for them to develop these tyres. Um, not so much for you know everyday normal people to go and use on track days, but for them to go to the Nurburgring and set these unbelievable times. And then for people like us and the whole, you know, car journalism industry to be chattering about them for weeks and months to come um, and, you know, sprinkling Stardust on their products. Is that not the real purpose of these tyres? Are they not just fantastic public relations opportunities rather than actually the sorts of things that are, for most people on even sensible, half sensible budgets uh, are just going to be too expensive to use? Yeah, Discuss. I, I suspect you're absolutely right. And it, it makes me feel even more strongly that people like us have a responsibility to discuss it in very frank terms. Um, and because I worry, OK, that it's clearly a phenomenally grippy tyre. But is it is it progress? OK, or is it just a different type of tyre? And someone some someone somewhere has gone, I know, let's make a tyre that only lasts five laps of a normal circuit and will break a load of lap records. Uh, and it doesn't matter if it's transferable to the rest of our range because we've got the headlines. Yeah, um, but I, th- you know. I think that is exactly what is happening. And you can't blame Michelin for doing that because, you know, that's how it improves its brand. And you can't blame the car manufacturers. Because, but, but what I think you can do is be aware of it. Um, and, you know, and, 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 just, and, and just point it out. Um, I think you know, we just did is, some journalism. Yeah. Gosh, who'd have thought? Um, Truth to power. <laughs> but I mean, you know, there is nothing, and, and maybe this is where we are now. There is nothing to stop a car manufacturer going to a tyre company because you know, don't forget these tyres are usually bespoke to these cars. You know, if you put a, a, a Cup Two R on your GT Two RS, um, you know that's a Cup Two R that's going to have been. I mean, Porsche actually have end markings on their tyres, don't they, to show that they are tyres that are developed specifically for that car, um, and. And if it hasn't got an M marking, then it's not a Porsche tyre. And so there's nothing to stop a car manufacturer, you know, and as I said, maybe this is where we are now, 
um, going to a tyre company and go, okay, we want you to do, the next tyre we'd like you to do for our car is something which is good for a lap of the Nürburgring. We want a 13-mile tyre. You know, we want, a bit, we, we want to do an out um, and we want it to be absolutely roasting by the time they come over the start-finish straight. And, you know, 13.1 miles later, we couldn't care. Like, we, we couldn't give the stuff what it does after that. Um, and, you know, you get yourself a hell of a lap time. What relevance it would have to people out there, who knows? But, but you're right. These are the questions that we therefore need to keep asking, isn't it? And just keep on top of them. And, yeah, and just sort of be mindful that this is what's going on. Um, good. Okay, all right. Well, let's, let's wrap that one up there. Um, I've mentioned Patreon already, haven't I? I won't, I won't do that again. So please, everyone, review the podcast. Leave us a rating. Makes a huge difference. It really does. And actually, I think we're, we're seeing growth with the podcast now. Um, and I'm sure a big part of that is you lot leaving reviews and ratings. So please keep doing it. It's, yeah. it's really um, important. And can I just say one more thing, uh, which is that by the time this goes out, um, we hope we should have gone past um 40,000 readers on the drive nation instagram site uh if you are one of them um i'd just like to say from both of us thank you so much uh we really do have big plans for drive nation um coming up in 2021 we will share with you we will share them with you um as soon as we reasonably can but in the meantime thanks so much for being part of what it is we do it really we really appreciate it we really enjoy it and we hope that you do too yeah and we'll be back again next week Yep, look forward to it. All the best. The Drive Nation Podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.